0: Welcome back, friends! I'm so excited to bring you Part 3, the finale of the Olympias series. So far, we've trucked our way through ancient Macedonia, some aggravated Greek city-states, and a bit of Persia, leaving a trail of political court intrigue, some regicide, a little murder, and some age-old Macedonian conspiracies behind us. Don't worry, the road ahead is just as exciting, maybe even more so. Because in this episode, we get to see Olympias unleashed. Because now, she's not just the chief wife of a king wielding power in a royal court and a Dionysian snake cult. Now, she's the mother of a king. A king who has been busy cutting his way through the Persian Empire while she stayed behind in Macedonia and, possibly in her mind, guarded the country in his stead. She had set her son, Alexander the Great, on a trajectory to make history. She had inculcated in him the belief that he was descended from Achilles, hero of the Iliad, as well as the royal house of ancient Troy. These stories, filled with the heroes of her line, inspired Alexander throughout his life and ignited his ambition. She had cunningly secured his position as heir to the throne, learned how ruthless and fickle royal life in a warrior culture could be, and had forged herself into a real force of wit, power, and perseverance. But tragedy would strike again. It always did for Olympias, for Macedonia, for Greece. And in this episode, we see the medal of Olympias tested by a world that seemed bent on ending everything she had fought for. But she wouldn't go down without putting up one hell of a fight. Let's go back now to ancient Macedonia, through the thick forests of oak, pine, and cedar, over the orchards and the herds of cattle and goats, through the temples when they were more than just crumbling stone, and let's find Olympias. She's been waiting for you. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. This is the third and final episode in the Olympias series, and since it's been a couple weeks since part two came out, let's do a quick recap of the story so far. If you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, they would make this episode much easier to get into as this story is full of twists and turns, so beginning at the last episode in the series might be confusing unless you're a classicist or already familiar with the story of the Eosids. It'd be like watching or reading The Return of the King in the Lord of the Rings series first. It'd still be a fun ride full of awesome battle scenes and orcs, but you'd get more out of it with the backstory. A lot has already happened, but I'll try and keep this recap as short and sweet as I can. Here we go. Olympias was born around 373 BCE in Melosia, a region in the north of Greece next to Macedonia. Like Macedonia, it was ruled by a monarchy and had a violent history. It was often warring with the fierce Illyrian tribes to the north, and kingship was a fickle, bloody business that could change hands quickly. Olympias' father was king of Melosia, and at some point was forced to share the throne with her uncle. She learned the ins and outs of the precarious life in an ancient Greek court at a young age, and by the time she married Philip II, probably around 18 years old or so, she would have been savvy, cunning, and well aware of how quickly a king or a royal wife could fall out of favor. She was probably the fourth wife of Philip, a man who was busy asserting his control over ancient Greece, much to the chagrin of city-states that had believed him to be little more than a warlord of a barbaric backwater. Philip would marry seven women that we know of, He had several daughters, including one with Olympias, and two sons. His eldest, Aridaeus, had a mental handicap that kept him from being seen as Philip's heir. His other son, Alexander, yes, that Alexander, was the son of Olympias. It was probably the fact that she had given birth to Philip's designated heir that allowed her to become the most powerful and influential of Philip's wives. And, super long story we've already been through short, Alexander was most likely his designated heir, leading soldiers and being given diplomatic responsibility at as young as 16. I couldn't even keep a plant alive at 16. Olympias was probably a powerful figure in the arena of religion, probably in several mystery cults, especially that of Dionysus, and she is credited with introducing the usage of snakes into rituals. Plutarch even claimed she was sleeping with snakes in her bed, something her husband Philip found more than a little (gasps) off-putting. What?! That's probably apocryphal, but we do know that snakes were used in the cult of Apollo in Epirus, so it's not impossible she would have brought that practice to the cult of Dionysus in Macedonia. For over 20 years during her marriage to Philip, Olympias enjoyed life as one of the most influential women in Greece a place that was not friendly to women in power, or women in general. If you remember from my first episode, a male slave had more rights in Athens than a woman did. But Philip wanted more than Greece. He had his eyes set on the Persian Empire, the biggest empire in history at the time, stretching over three continents. To solidify what was probably an important military alliance, Philip married the niece of a man named Attalus. Skipping ahead a bit, Attalus toasted the future children of his niece Cleopatra and Philip at a dinner party that turned into a disaster real fast. He said something insinuating that his niece, a full-blooded Macedonian, would give birth to a legitimate full Macedonian heir. This basically meant he was saying Alexander was not legitimate because his mother was Molossian and that he was not fit for the throne. Alexander stormed out after Philip refused to defend him, and he sent Olympias back to Molossia where her brother, who was, by the way, probably a former lover of Philip's, was king. Philip decided the family needed to make amends, because he was about to fight his way through the Persian Empire, and having an heir in case he was skewered by a bunch of Persian arrows, would ensure his legacy continued. So he agreed to marry the daughter he had with Olympias to Olympias' brother. It's gross and incestuous to us now, but it was a way for Philip to strengthen his ties with the Eocids, Olympias' dynasty, and it would have made her happy. And as we saw in the last episode, you didn't want Olympias on your bad side. During this whole family drama, Philip's newest wife did give him a new child, a daughter named Europa. There's some confusion in the ancient sources, as always, about whether Cleopatra gave Philip two children or one, or whether she maybe even gave birth to a son, but most contemporary sources agree it was just the one daughter, so that's what we're going with. Philip threw a huge international festival for his daughter's wedding, days of feasting, musical competitions, and sacrifices to the gods. On the day of the wedding procession, Philip walked sandwiched between Alexander and Olympias' brother. The king's guard, the Somatophylax, made up of elite nobles and generals, marched with the king, all the way to the local theater. Upon arrival, Philip waved his guards away, showing the crowd he, a battle-worn king who had brought Macedonia to the world stage, had no need for protection. But one of the somatophylax was a man named Pausanias. Pausanias was a former lover of Philip's. He had been brutally sexually assaulted by a group of men at the behest of Attalus, that same man that had insulted Alexander, and therefore Olympias. Philip did not punish Attalus for this crime, just like he had not reprimanded him for insulting his son, probably because Attalus was an important ally to the king. Instead, Philip gave Pausanias a spot in the king's guard, hoping that would placate him. This would prove to be a fatal mistake. Pausanias, seeing Philip had called off his guard in the theater, used that moment to lunge forward and plunge a dagger into Philip's ribs. Killing the king. Pausanias had probably premeditated all of this because he began to flee towards some horses he had left tied at the city gates. But in his escape, he tripped and fell, which allowed the other guards to catch up to him and kill him. There are going to be a lot of stabby sound effects in this episode. Killing Pausanias meant that no one was able to question him, and for millennia, people have been arguing over who was really responsible for the death of Philip II. Some say Pausanias acted alone, some say the Persians had something to do with it, and a lot of people put the blame on both Alexander and Olympias, but especially Olympias. I mentioned in the last episode that I too had thought Olympias had something to do with the assassination of Philip until I read Professor Elizabeth Carney's book titled Olympias, Mother of Alexander the Great. This book is the only contemporary, academic, non-fiction book we have that was written with Olympias as the main subject. In it, Carney slices through 2400 years of propaganda and biased, unreliable sources to try and get a glimpse of who Olympias really was. Her life has been so steeped in negative narratives that make her out to be a villain that the sexist and very xenophobic accounts of ancient writers who saw women in power as unnatural have carried over to influence modern sources, even today. Sifting through the fake news to find the truth is now impossible, because we just don't have enough reliable evidence about this history. But Carney does better than any other source I've found. Now, given that the death of Philip did not guarantee Alexander's succession, that if she wanted Philip dead, she probably would have arranged it much more intelligently, and not on her daughter's wedding day, and that there were many people, including the Athenians, the Illyrians, and the Persians, who could all have believed that they would have benefited from Philip's death, Olympias is no longer suspect number one for me. Philip's death did delay the Persian conquest for two years, and Pausanias could very well have planned to ride those horses he had stashed by the gates to a cushy exile at the behest of the Persian king. We can't say that she had nothing to do with it, but I do think Given how cunning some of her other actions proved to be, that if she wanted him dead she would have pulled it off in a way that didn't garner suspicion towards her or her son. Her son's ascension to the throne was probably her chief goal, and jeopardizing that in such a messy way would have just been too much of a gamble. After Philip's death, Alexander did become king. He crushed rebellions that broke at the wake of his father's murder, slaughtered thousands, enslaved a few thousand more, and began killing rivals to the throne, including Philip's nephew, who Philip had usurped the throne from years before. Alexander also killed Attalus, the man who had insulted him, and arranged the sexual assault of Pausanias. But Olympias dealt with Cleopatra, Philip's seventh wife, and her newborn child, Europa. There are several versions of how this played out, but Olympias had Cleopatra's baby killed and then probably forced Cleopatra to hang herself. Wow. That was the first time we saw just how far Olympias would go to protect her lineage. It took two years for Alexander to finish quelling the rebellions that had broken out, But after he had a firm hold on Greece once again, Alexander finally rode out for Persia. Olympias stayed behind in Macedonia, hoping in vain that her son would return alive, well, and ready to rule for decades. What actually happened would set in motion a series of events that would lead to the utter destruction of a dynasty. We don't know what Olympias felt when her son was out conquering Persia and invading India, but we do know that when he was away, she used his absence as an opportunity to wield more power than she ever had as the wife of Philip. The first few years of Alexander's reign were tumultuous. Plutarch wrote that there were, quote, great jealousies, terrible hatred, and danger everywhere, unquote. This was not unusual, as the changing of a king, even when it fell to someone in the same family, was usually met with upheaval and a great deal of violence, hence the rebellions that had popped up everywhere. But Olympius was calculating, and after murdering Cleopatra and her baby, being suspected of having a hand in Philip's murder, and let's not forget that she probably kept snakes in her house that she would bring out for mysterious cult rituals, People were eager to stay on her good side. In the two years it took for Alexander to regain a hold on Greece before he left for Persia, he did not marry or produce any heirs. Years would pass before either of these things would happen. His generals, specifically Parmenio and Antipater, urged him to marry. Both probably wanted him to marry one of their daughters, but he refused to take a bride. This could have been for several reasons. He had seen his father marry seven different women and would have seen firsthand the complexity and disharmony that could come with royal marriages. It could be argued that Philip's last marriage led to his assassination, and it's possible Alexander didn't want to trouble himself with the discord that marriage could bring, especially if it meant choosing the daughter of one of his generals over another. We can't say for sure that Olympias would have urged her son not to marry for some time, but it would have been in her best interest to do so, from a power standpoint anyway. If Alexander were to marry, there's no doubt his wife would have enjoyed some significant power at court. Olympias could have seen this as something that potentially would reduce her own power, as well as that of her only daughter who also remained back in Greece. She had spent years holding her position as Philip's chief wife for decades, and she would not have been eager to have to share her newfound power as the king's mother with yet another woman. So, Alexander stayed single. Coincidence? Maybe. But the more I learn about Olympias, the less inclined I become to put anything past her. Alexander did finally marry in 327 BCE. Her name was Roxanne, or Roxana, a name meaning little star. She was Bactrian, and the daughter of a satrap who had surrendered to Alexander. The reason for the marriage is debated. Some say it's because Alexander fell in love with her the second he saw her. This is similar to the story we were told about Olympias and Philip, which we discussed in episode 1, and we know is probably apocryphal. Marriages were used as political leverage for kings, and Alexander watched his father marry time and time again to strengthen alliances and forge new ones. He would have known how important a strong politically arranged marriage could be. And even Plutarch mentions how his marriage to Roxanne could have been an advantageous way for Alexander to play to the people he had just conquered. Plutarch wrote, It seemed at the same time to be conductive to the object he had in hand, for it gratified the conquered people to see him choose a wife from among themselves." Alexander had numerous lovers, both men and women and he would marry three women in total, all three of Persian descent. Roxana was the daughter of a satrap, Statira was the daughter of Darius III, the last king of the Persian Empire before it fell to Alexander, and Perisatis, daughter of a former Persian king that had ruled before Darius. Alexander would start incorporating Persian customs and dress into his court, something that would increasingly upset his Greek friends, nobles, and soldiers. He wanted to merge the cultures of his homeland and the people he had conquered, something that caused resentment and drama throughout his reign. Olympias and Alexander corresponded frequently, and they remained important to one another. When Alexander was injured in India with a nearly fatal wound, he declared that if he should die, he wanted his mother to become deified. He sent her booty and pillaged treasures from his conquests, and she would use part of these riches to fund offerings to the gods on his behalf at the shrines of Hygieia in Athens and at Delphi. She continued to hold a lead role in religion, something that was inevitably tied to politics, as there was no separation of religion and state in ancient Macedonian politics. The two were intertwined, and religion was a way for Olympias to maintain a powerhold in the realm of politics. We also know she engaged in economics. Her name and her daughter's name both appear on a list of major recipients of grain from Cyrene for Macedonia. Their names appear without a patronymic or a reference to Alexander, suggesting they were engaging in trade on their own, which they could not have done if they didn't both wield some power. Around 332 BCE, Olympias moved from Macedonia back to Melosia upon hearing that her brother had been killed in battle making his wife, her daughter Cleopatra, a widow. From Melosia, she continued to correspond with her son. Olympias kept herself well informed about domestic and international affairs and wrote to Alexander about what she knew and gave advice accordingly. For example, she was apparently concerned that Alexander was rewarding his companions too graciously with the spoils of war, Something she may have worried would lead others to acquiring more power through wealth and diminishing the line between her son's position as king and his subjects. Before he left, Alexander did not seem to delegate any specific offices to anyone. Olympias may have used her son's absence to assert more power than she would have been afforded if he had remained in Macedonia. She may have seen herself as a sort of regent, but the problem was, so did his general that he left behind as supreme commander of his armed forces in Europe, a man named Antipater. The power struggle between these two, and to an extent Olympias' daughter Cleopatra, the only full sister of Alexander, would be a source of contention for years. Antipater had supported Alexander's succession after Philip's assassination, and had been a presence in Alexander's life throughout his youth. The feud with Olympias probably did not start until Alexander left. This rivalry crescendoed its way from an antagonistic animosity to arch-enemy Deathcon level 10. Alexander no doubt knew about this rivalry, and he did nothing to address it. According to Carney, he may have intended for Olympias to be a sort of counterweight to Antipater, ensuring the general didn't become too powerful. And Alexander did have a tendency to pit his favorites against one another, something he very well may have learned from his mother. Both Antipater and Olympias believed the other was wielding more power than was appropriate. No doubt they both communicated this to Alexander, but eventually Olympias managed to convince her son that Antipater was becoming more of a threat than an ally, at least to some degree. Elizabeth Carney explains this perfectly, which she states in her book, quote, "...Alexander knew that he could trust his mother to be concerned about his interests because they were also hers, whereas he could not trust Antipater to the same extent because the two men's interests were increasingly different." Unquote. Olympias was intelligent, and Alexander had been taking her advice, or at least dealing with the fact that she was constantly giving him advice, for his entire life. So Alexander ordered Antipater to leave Macedonia and report to him at his court in Babylon. He also replaced him with a man named Craterus, another of Alexander's generals. This was all bad news for Antipater. He had been replaced, stripped of some authority, and had been ordered to meet Alexander in Babylon. There's little doubt that this had much to do with the correspondence Olympias was sending her son. She had potentially lowered his status and ability in the eyes of his king, and Antipater would never forgive her for it. Perhaps out of spite for Olympias and his king's doubts, or perhaps out of total disobedience, Antipater would not obey his king. He did not go to meet Alexander, and that does seem a bit suspicious. It's also possible he didn't want to go because he feared Alexander would reprimand him or even kill him for whatever was in his mother's letters. But disobeying a direct order from Alexander could have meant Antipater did believe he held more power than was appropriate. If that was the case, then Olympias was right. Whatever his reasons, he didn't go to Babylon, but sent his son Cassander instead to plead to Alexander on his behalf. Alexander was not pleased he had been disobeyed. To make things worse, as the story goes, he caught Cassander laughing when he saw several Persians prostrating themselves before the king by falling to the floor before him, a Persian custom called proskinesis. Bowing, kneeling, or prostrating before a king was not something the ancient Greeks did, as that was something they reserved only for their gods. The Persians saw their king as a representation of the divine, and proskinesis was the norm, and it had already caused animosity in Alexander's court before Cassander even arrived. It was another Persian custom that had made his Greek counterparts increasingly resentful. Upon seeing proskinesis for the first time, Cassander laughed, at which point Alexander slammed his head against a wall. Ouch. The son of Olympias did not take laughter at his expense with good humor. Things at this point for Alexander were not what they had been the day he had become king 13 years ago. His best, most loyal friend, Hephaestion, who according to most accounts was probably also his lover, had died of a fever a few months prior, causing Alexander to fall into a heavy state of grief. After Hephaestion's death, Alexander's personality shifted. He began drinking even more, his temper was unpredictable, and he seemed to become self indulgent to the point of recklessness. While Cassander was at Alexander's court, something else happened. Something that would cause a chain of events to take all the happily evers out of everyone's afters. A message was sent around the world, and Olympias would receive it in the summer of 323 BCE. I do not envy the messenger that delivered it. The message was that her son, the man she had spent a lifetime protecting, was dead. The death of Alexander brought chaos to the world he had conquered. Immediately after his death, those generals of his that had collaborated and followed the same king fought alongside each other for years, through grueling campaigns, drank and ate together, and made history side by side, drew their swords at one another. Alexander had carved out the largest empire the world had seen at this point in history, and everyone wanted a piece of it. In this case, the thirst for power overruled any sense of fellowship. What happened next was a series of wars called the Wars of the Diodecai, where Alexander's generals would fight for authority, and the question of who his successor would be would make for a bloody mess. After this would begin the Successor Wars, and there would be four of those which included the descendants of the Diodecai. And while all of these generals and their descendants were fighting over the scraps of Alexander's empire, a whole lot of people would die but I'm getting ahead of myself. The exact cause of Alexander's death is still a fiercely debated subject. Alexander fell ill after a hard night of drinking, and it took him 12 days to die. During that time, he had a high fever, severe abdominal pain, and increasingly lost his ability to speak and move. Ancient accounts say his body took much longer than normal for decay to set in, At the time, it was believed the delay in decomposition was a miracle, proving Alexander's divinity. But if this account of delayed decay is true, there actually may be a real scientific explanation. Malaria, typhoid, alcoholism, and poison have all been popular theories for his death but more recently it has been suggested by Catherine Hall, a senior lecturer in the Department of General Practice and Rural Health at the University of Otago in New Zealand, that he may have died from something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS. This is a rare neurological disorder in which someone's own immune system becomes incapable of differentiating between an invading organism and their own body. GBS would have caused his body to fall into paralysis, explaining why he didn't decompose right away. It's possible he had been declared dead while he was actually still alive, and possibly even conscious. That's morbid even for the ancient world. But another recent theory points to a poisonous plant from the Lily family, called White Hellebore. Dr. Leo Shep, a toxicologist from New Zealand's Poison Center, argues that this would explain why it took so long for Alexander to die, as well as could explain his symptoms, and an ancient account that described the king falling ill after drinking a large bowl of unmixed wine in honor of Hercules. If this was the case, then we can't rule out the theory of poisoning. We don't know what killed him for sure, but for the rest of her life, Olympias would believe that Antipater and his sons had poisoned Alexander. His death had occurred after Antipater had failed to obey a direct order, and while his son was in Babylon in his stead. And one of Alexander's cupbearers was a man named Aeolus, another son of Antipater. You have to admit, that does look a bit suspicious. And the ensuing actions of Antipater and his son Cassander will also look very suspicious. Unfortunately, we'll never know the true cause of Alexander's death without his body, which many believe is still buried under the city of Alexandria somewhere. Finding it would not only be one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, but it would answer questions that have been hovering in the minds of historians for millennia. And it's out there somewhere. Probably. But until we find it, speculating with modern information using ancient sources is all we've got, and that's not much to go on. Olympias blamed Antipater and his sons for Alexander's murder, and she was probably not quiet about it. She would have known that his death heralded disaster for her family, and I can imagine that the news of his death must have hit her harder than anything else ever had. The burying of the dead was an incredibly important aspect of Greek religion, and if you remember from the first episode in this series, it was mainly the domain of women. As she was a religious authority, I wonder if Olympias was planning on taking care of this herself, or at least overseeing the burial of her son back in his homeland. But when it was en route, Ptolemy, one of Alexander's generals, absconded with his body, taking it to Egypt, hoping the Egyptian people would see it as proof that he should rule in Alexander's stead. Interestingly enough, this worked, and the Ptolemaic dynasty would exist for some centuries, ending with the most famous of Cleopatra's. But it would cost Olympias the closure she would have had if she could have buried her son herself. Not only did she never get to see her son again after he left on his campaign for Asia, but she would never get to inter his body with the customs she held so dear. According to Plutarch, his body was mummified by the Egyptians. Her son's death would turn the dispute between her and the family of Antipater into a deadly head-to-head fight between dynasties. Before he died, when asked who should inherit his empire, Alexander apparently only said, To the strongest. We don't know if that's a true account, but if it is, Alexander certainly wasn't doing his lineage any favors. Alexander died with no viable heirs. His wife, Roxana was pregnant with his child, and the world held its breath on waiting to hear whether or not it was a son. When she gave birth, the baby was a boy and immediately became a potential candidate for inheriting whatever part of Alexander's empire would not be carved up by his generals. But this was ancient Greece. The likelihood of an infant living long enough to inherit his father's throne was slim at best. The changing of kings in Macedonia always brought bloodshed, and an infant in the arms of its Bactrian mother was not the horse to bet on. But it was decided that this new baby, dubbed Alexander IV, would reign once he was old enough to inherit the throne. In the meantime, before the baby was born, Alexander's half-brother Aridaeus had already been crowned king of Macedonia upon news of the king's death. He was not capable of ruling on his own due to his mental handicap, a convenience for those who would desire to use him as a puppet king. If Greek culture had allowed women to act as regents as Egypt had done in the past, Olympias could have acted as such for her grandson. Little Alexander's mother, Roxana was Bactrian, something the Macedonians would not have liked, but Olympias, with her intelligence, experience, and cunning, successfully clearing the way for his throne the way she had done for her son. But the patriarchal nature of Ancient Greece did not allow for this. If it had, this history would have been a lot less complicated. Probably still bloody, but Greece could have transitioned much more easily into its next king's reign, History could have been very different if Olympias had been allowed to shine here. So Macedonia technically had two kings at this point in time, Aridaeus and Alexander IV. Since one was unable to rule and the other was a baby, a man named Perdiccas, Alexander's closest friend after Hephaestion, acted as regent for both of them. Alexander may have had other children, but none of them, if they existed, would have been considered legitimate. Roxana probably had his two other wives murdered, sometime after her son's birth. Plutarch would say this was due to jealousy, because apparently that's the only emotion he thought women could have. But it was probably a way for her to ensure the future of her son was safeguarded. Olympias was far from the only royal woman that would kill to keep her child safe. To make everything worse, at the news of Alexander's death, the Greek world revolted, once again wanting to be free from the yoke of Macedonia. Olympias had to act quickly if she was going to keep the rest of her family alive in this cutthroat world of transition. Her daughter and last surviving child, Cleopatra, had joined her mother in the accusation of Antipater and his sons, but there wasn't much they could do about any of it without an army. The best way for these two women to come into some sense of security again would be to do it through a marriage alliance. Olympias was in her 50s now, so this responsibility would fall to her daughter. Cleopatra had remained unmarried after her husband's death some years before, But only months after Alexander's death, she began looking at her prospects. She was the only full-blooded sister of Alexander, and marrying her would give any groom a much better claim to Macedonia. She was the world's bachelorette number one, and you would have been hard-pressed to find someone that didn't want to marry the sister of the dead king. Usually, marriages were arranged for women in ancient Greece, but Cleopatra was in a position now to choose who she wanted. She proposed marriage to a man named Leonidas. He had been a member of Alexander's guard, he was kin, and he had an army. He also had his sights on Macedonia, and he knew that marrying Cleopatra would greatly aid him in getting it. But seeing as this was ancient Greece, He was killed in battle at the Siege of Lamia, before they could wed. Oh no. The next potential groom they lined up was Perdiccas, the man acting as regent to Alexander's brother and son. Olympias sent Cleopatra to meet him in Sardis in modern-day Turkey, where he was with both kings and the majority of the Macedonian army. The problem was, Perdiccas was already promised to a woman named Nicaea, Wanna guess whose daughter she was? Ten points, if you guessed Antipater's. He had his hand in everything. It's possible one of the reasons Olympias and Cleopatra chose Perdiccas was to thwart Antipater's attempt to tie himself to the regent of the two kings. What made things even more awkward was that Cleopatra and Nicaea arrived in Sardis at the same time in the race to win Perdiccas and his army. Perticus had already accepted the proposal of marriage to Nicaea before Cleopatra had offered him her hand. He had accepted Antipater's deal because he needed the aid of his army, but now he definitely wanted to wed the woman who would possibly give him a son of the Argeot dynasty of Alexander. He could not afford to offend Antipater, so he married Nicaea, but he kept corresponding with Cleopatra, trying to figure out a way to wed her instead. When Antipater found out about this, that Olympias was once again meddling in his affairs, he was livid and immediately made war on Perdiccas, along with his friends Craterus and Ptolemy. This was horrendously bad news for Perdiccas, and he had only two options. One was to head to Egypt to fight the armies of the other generals. The other was to head to Macedonia and make his war there. Some of his advisors urged him to head to Macedonia, where Olympias could garner the support of the Macedonians due to her reputation, which would greatly aid him in his fight. This shows how, even without her son or husband's army, Olympias was still a force to be reckoned with and held great influence in the Greek world. But Perdiccas believed his chances were better taking the fight to Egypt, so that's where he headed. He was promptly defeated and killed by his own men. He should have gone with Olympias. He at least would have had the support of the Macedonians behind him if he had. But hindsight is 20-20, especially when you're dead. And Cleopatra was once again in search of a marriage alliance. She decided to stay in Sardis. This kept her closer to her marriage prospects, but also an environment of increasing danger. Antipater actually confronted her in Sardis and berated her for her part in the Perdiccas fiasco, but according to Arian, she berated him in equal force, holding her own and making accusations against him as well, possibly about his having a hand in the death of her brother. This daughter of Olympias would not be cowed, and in the end Antipater had to walk away. As the sister of Alexander and the daughter of Olympias, He probably would have feared the hit his reputation would take if he had killed her right then. She remained in Sardis even after the encounter with Antipater, and Olympias returned to Melosia where her two grandchildren, the children of Cleopatra, were still at court. Cleopatra's son was too young to rule Melosia on his own, and he was made to share the throne with his cousin Eosides, Olympias' nephew. She would persuade Eosides to her cause against Antipater, which does not at all surprise me at this point. But when Perdiccas was killed, both Macedonian kings fell under the regency of Antipater, Olympias' arch-rival. Any hope she may have had in gaining a powerful alliance through her daughter marrying was fading fast. Now, with control of the two kings, Antipater was more powerful than ever. He brought both kings back to Macedonia, and Olympias began planning on what to do next planning what to do with the man who she blamed, along with his sons, for her son's death. Olympias had warned Alexander for years that Antipater wanted Macedonia for himself, and now he had it. Makes you wonder if she had been right all along. But then Antipater did something unexpected. He died. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. If you're a podcaster, you know how hard it can be to monetize and how much of a hassle it can be to find the right advertisers. That's where Podcorn comes in. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to all sorts of sponsorship opportunities. You get to set your own rates and choose which brands you want to represent. When I reached out to them, they got back to me in less than 24 hours with an opportunity. I know how expensive it can be to make a podcast and how long it can take to attract sponsors. Podcorn makes it easy and helps you monetize on your own terms so you can worry less about those hosting fees and get back to creating. No matter how big or how small your listener base is, if you're a podcaster, check out the Podcorn link in the show notes to start browsing your sponsorship opportunities today. Now, back to the show. Olympias did not kill Antipater, though I imagine she must have reveled at the news of the death of her biggest rival. (laughs) (laughs) He died of old age at 80 years old. Somehow, in this violent world of continually changing kings and conquests, Someone managed to live to 80. Antipater did not name one of his sons as his heir, much to the chagrin of Cassander, who very much believed in his own capabilities. To secede him, Antipater chose Polyperchon, a Macedonian commander that had fought with Alexander. Cassander was made second in command, greatly resented this, and immediately began trying to overthrow Polyperchon. Polyperchon was now the regent of Olympias' grandson and the supreme commander of Macedonia. Olympias was still in Melosia, and it was probably with some surprise that she received a message from Polyperchon, the successor of her mortal enemy, asking her to come back to Macedonia and care for her grandson. Her reply was no. She did not trust Polyperchon. She knew how poor her grandson's chances of surviving into adulthood were, and there was no reason she wouldn't have believed this wasn't some sort of trap. An account from Diodorus describes a letter she wrote seeking advice from a trusted friend named Eumenes. In the letter, she stated that she distrusted those who claimed to be the guardian of kings, but in truth wanted to bring the monarchy over to themselves. But, wanting the boost to his reputation that the mother of Alexander would garner to his side, Polyperchon sent her another invitation, asking her to come again, back to the court of Macedonia. Again, she said, uh, no. When the third invitation came, she finally caved. No one really knows why she finally agreed. Perhaps she wanted to influence her grandson, perhaps she thought this was the best chance her dynasty had of surviving, Or perhaps she wanted to keep her enemies close, if Polyperchon was indeed an enemy. Whatever the reason, Olympias left Melosia, despite her suspicions, and met her grandson for the first time. He was four years old now, and I wonder if she saw an echo of the son she had loved so much in his young face. Her grandson was half-Bactrian, and many were reluctant to follow a king who was not a full-blooded Macedonian but the only other option at the time was Aridaeus, who was not able to rule himself. But there was a considerable force on the side of Aridaeus who we haven't met yet, and her name was Adia Eurydice. She was the daughter of Alexander's half-sister, Kinane, and was the granddaughter of Philip II. She had married Alexander's brother Aridaeus a few years prior, so she was Alexander the Great's cousin-slash-niece-slash-sister-in-law. All of this incest just makes everything unnecessarily confusing. Adia came from a long line of warrior women. Philip II had married her grandmother, an Illyrian woman named Audata, who gave birth to Alexander's half-sister, Kinane. Kinane's Illyrian mother trained her daughter with the skills of a warrior, just like her mother had probably done for her. Kinane became renowned for her skills as a warrior. There's even an ancient account of her killing an Illyrian queen in hand-to-hand combat. There are no early accounts of this that survive, but Polyanus wrote from the 2nd century CE that, Quote, Kinane, the daughter of Philip, was famous for her military knowledge. She conducted armies and in the field charged at the head of them. In an engagement with the Illyrians, she with her own hand slew Caeria, their queen, and with great slaughter defeated the Illyrian army." It's safe to assume Kinane was a force to be reckoned with. Alexander had had her husband killed at one point, so neither she nor her daughter Adia, who was now married to Alexander's brother, had much love for Olympias' side of the family. Kinane had made a power play shortly after Alexander's death. She was only in her 30s at the time, but she insisted her daughter Adia marry the brother of Alexander instead of herself. She mobilized her troops and marched them towards Babylon in an attempt to force Aridaeus to marry her daughter. Edea was of the Argeid dynasty, and if she were to have a child with Aridaeus, it would most likely become heir to the throne of Alexander's kingdom, as their child would be a full-blooded Macedonian and direct descendant of Philip II. Fearing that a match between Kinane's daughter and Aridaeus would make the couple too powerful, our old buddy Antipater was sent by our old buddy Perdiccas, both dead now, with an army in an attempt to thwart her army before it reached Babylon. Antipater met Kinane in battle, and she defeated him. Easily. Her tactics were superior, and she apparently cut through his army like a hot knife through butter. Antipater was forced to retreat, but Perdiccas couldn't let Kinane seize power through her daughter's match. It would compromise the power of the generals who were busy carving up the empire for themselves. So, he sent his brother, Alcetus, who had been a childhood friend of hers, hoping that seeing him would convince her to turn back. But she would not be swayed. She wanted her daughter married to the new king. She began berating Alcetus while she was on horseback, and in the middle of her speech, Alcetus killed her. Which seems a bit cowardly. Being slain by a childhood friend while she was on her horse Weapon, probably undrawn, was an unfitting end for such a glorious warrior. And everyone else thought so too. His troops were so enraged at Alcetus and Perdiccas for the killing of Kinane that they revolted and demanded that her daughter Adia be married to Aridaeus just like she had wanted. The generals relented and Adia married Alexander's brother anyway. A tactical move that cost Kinane her life. But Kinane had taught Adia well. She was the daughter of a warrior, and she would have seen Alexander's son as a threat. If Olympius’s grandchild lived long enough to take the throne, there was probably no doubt in her mind that both she and Aridaeus would be put to death. Once the young boy took the throne, Olympius and Alexander IV would clean house exactly the way she and Alexander her son had done when he had taken the throne. Adea had not given Aridaeus any children in the subsequent years that they were married, but she spent that time wooing the Macedonian army over to her side, despite her youth. She had even managed to get the Macedonian soldiers their back pay, something that only boosted their loyalty to this fierce daughter of Kinanes. Either right before Olympias came to care for her grandson, or right after, Adia decided to make her move. I can't help but feel bad for Aridaeus. This poor guy had been a pawn for those who wanted to capitalize on his bloodline since his brother's death. We don't even know how much of any of this he was even aware of. Because of his mental handicap, others were able to use him for their own ends. Adia and Aridaeus left the court of Polyperchon and made an alliance with Cassander, the man who was now attempting to take control of the kingdom from Polyperchon and therefore Alexander IV. Cassander was happy to have Adea on his side. She commanded the loyalty of many troops and was clearly controlling the decisions of her husband. She knew Alexander IV's kingship would mean her death, and Olympias knew that a child born of Aridaeus and Adea would mean the death of her grandson, and if she were still alive by then, probably herself, too. Adea, allying with Cassander meant there was no more time to waste. Only one of these kings could rule, and only one branch of this dynasty could survive. Olympias called upon Polyperchon and her nephew Eosides for their troops. Adea called on Cassander and the army of Macedonia that was loyal to her and the son of Philip. It was time for a showdown. This was not the first time in history that two Argeids had gone head to head, but it was the first time they were both women. This war is one of the first in history we know of waged between two women. This was Olympias versus Adea Eurydice. Both women were fighting for their lives, and one of them was about to die. Adea Eurydice, perhaps because she was so confident, perhaps because the army of Olympius was drawing closer, decided not to wait for Cassander's troops. Her mother had been a famous warrior and had trained her in everything she knew. Bravery, honor, and glory. The armies marched to the border of Macedonia and Melosia. Olympias may have recognized the mountain passes and steep crags from her childhood as her army wound its way over the rugged landscape, thick with oak and ash. These were likely the same paths she had taken when she had left home to marry Philip. How long ago that must have seemed. Both women knew this would be the end of one of them. Both of them were laying everything on the line. Adea and Aridaeus were with the Macedonian army, but she was the one commanding it. She was not dressed as a Macedonian queen, but a warrior. She may have worn Illyrian greaves to protect her legs, breast and pectoral armor made of bronze, perhaps a helmet, glittering each time it caught the sun as she rode on horseback at the head of her army. Unlike her mother, Adea was unproven in battle. This would be her first war. It's hard to know what she would have felt that day, but no doubt the memory of her mother and the training passed down from mother to daughter would have given her confidence as she marched to meet the monumental force that was Olympius. Olympias. Olympias was with her army too, along with Polyperchon, a man who had proved to be an ally. But she was not dressed as a warrior, not even as a queen. Olympias had spent a lifetime cultivating a powerful image through the mystery cults of ancient Greece, and she marched with her army dressed as a worshiper of Dionysus. Her linen would have been the finest in the world, falling in a loose fit that dropped to her ankles. She may have worn jewelry, diadems, finger rings, thigh bands, elaborate hair ornaments, armbands, or even a wreath. Gold, precious gems, stones, or pearls may have been inlaid into the most dazzling pieces, perhaps the spoils of her son's campaigns. This woman, now in her 50s, was a stunning, brilliant, intimidating sight. This priestess of Dionysus, this mother of kings, this woman who was already a legend, was terrifying when she was not on your side. When the army of Adea met the army of Olympias and the soldiers of Macedonia saw the mother of Alexander arrayed in the robes of a god, they could not bring themselves to fight her. They threw down their swords or didn't draw them at all. None of the promises of Adia Eurydice mattered to them once they saw Olympias. The battle was over before it began. Olympius had won without even having to draw a sword. Then, she went on a rampage. Adia Eurydice had to have known this was the end. The feeling she must have had at being betrayed by the army she had fought to win for the last five years would have been a deep and dark one. Adea and Aridaeus were captured and brought to Olympias. In another time, she may well have killed them right away. That's usually what a victorious leader did, and it was expected, it was tradition. But Olympias had lost her son, her daughter was trapped in Sardis, and her grandson had less a chance of surviving than a lit match thrown into the ocean. She was done, conforming to tradition. Adea had allied herself with Cassander, who Olympias still believed had killed her son. Eridaeus had been the only threat to the rule of her son while he was alive, and now he was the most serious threat to her grandson. She would kill both of them, but not before she made them suffer. She had them bricked up in separate rooms with only one small, mail slot-sized opening that let in sunlight and air, and only that so food could be squeezed through. She did not want them to die right away. She wanted them to suffer as she was suffering. She wanted to set an example so Cassandra could see exactly what happened when you went up against Olympias of Epirus. And she didn't stop there. She killed Cassander's brother, Nicanor. She overturned the tomb of his other brother, Aeolus, the man who had been cupbearer, to her son. The desecration of a grave in ancient Greece would have been an enormous insult. She claimed it was punishment for her son's death. After that, she selected 100 of Cassander's friends and had them slaughtered. When the Macedonians began to express their pity for the royal pair trapped in their bricked-up prisons, she decided it was time for them to die, too. She had Aridaeus stabbed to death. It was expected that men taken as prisoners of war were to die by the blade, a tradition she did decide to uphold. I've described before how Aridaeus had suffered from a lifelong mental illness, and we don't know how severe it was, but it's possible he wouldn't have even known why any of this was happening to him. That is a truly heartbreaking thought. She made Adia Eurydice, granddaughter of Philip, kill herself. Adia chose to die by hanging, which was the preferred method for noble women of the ancient Greek world. These events may well all have happened. It's also possible they are exaggerated Ancient writers would write scathing narratives about Olympias forevermore for the things she did. Her crimes, horrendous as they were if these things are true, were not unusual for ancient Macedonia. For example, Antigonus had Antigenes burned alive, and one of Cassander's generals would have 500 of Polyperchon's followers burned alive. Perdiccas had a large number of his enemies, accounts put the numbers from 30 to 300, trampled to death by elephants. What made her crimes unusual for the time was that they had been committed by a woman. Carney writes, quote, in her willingness to employ remorseless political violence, Olympias showed herself to be just like rather than different from the male successors, unquote. In other words, just about everyone at this time in Alexander's crumbling empire that held any sort of authority was ruthless in protecting that authority. This was the most powerful Olympias would ever be. After her victory, she would change her name for the last time to Stratonice, which meant victory in military matters. This may have been more of an epithet than an actual name change, but the meaning drew attention directly to this victory over Adea, Aridaeus, and Cassander. It's not hard to be shocked at the things Olympias did to avenge the death of her son, to secure the throne for her grandson, and to eliminate the people who wanted her dead before they could eliminate her. It shows not only that she was determined to survive, but that she commanded a considerable amount of power. She had just stopped an army with her reputation. But in the end, her reputation would not protect her forever. Cassander was livid at the death of his friends, his brother, his allies, and the desecration of his brother's grave. Her actions after her victory almost seemed calculated to draw Cassander into a fight. Whether or not this was her intention, we'll never know for sure. Cassander at the time was on campaign in the Peloponnese. It's debated as to how long it took, but when Cassander heard of Olympias' victory and the subsequent damage she had done to his ambition for power, he left his campaign and headed for Macedonia. And he was bringing his army with him. His decisions and actions from here on out show that he was intent on getting the one thing that had eluded so many others in the last half-century. The death of Olympias. The next holiday season, when you're looking around at everyone and thinking about how dysfunctional your family is, you can at least take solace in knowing that your mom didn't murder your niece-slash-cousin-slash-sister-in-law who incestuously married your half-brother, or your stepmom and her baby, and that your father doesn't have seven wives, or that your uncle didn't marry your sister after he slept with your dad. But I digress. Olympias had made her opinion of Cassander clear. She believed that, just like his father Antipater, he wanted Macedonia for himself. She clearly thought he had played a hand in poisoning her son, and she believed he was an enemy out to kill everyone else in her line that stood in his way to the throne. By the end of this story, you'll have to wonder if… maybe she was right. The events that happened next all happened fairly quickly, so quickly that Olympias and Polyperchon may have underestimated the rapidity of Cassander's advance. At this point, Polyperchon, who was still technically in charge, seems to have taken a back seat, while Olympias took a more commanding role. She was powerful, and she knew it and she knew Cassander was advancing, so she called upon her allies, their armies, and commanded her troops to try and thwart Cassander before he could arrive in Macedonia. But this would prove to be much more difficult a task than she may have believed. First, the Aetolians, allies of hers, sent troops to block Cassander at the famous pass of Thermopylae, the Hot Gates, that King Leonidas of Sparta famously defended from Xerxes, during the second Persian invasion of Greece over a century and a half earlier in one of history's most famous last stands, But Cassander used naval transport to move his forces into Thessaly anyway, and began heading straight for Olympias. Polyperchon, in an effort to meet Cassander's forces, moved his army to the border of Macedonia to cut Cassander off before he could advance any further. But Cassander, realizing this plan, circumnavigated around Polyperchon's army, sidestepping it completely and avoiding any conflict altogether. To ensure Polyperchon did not follow him, Cassander sent one of his generals, Callus, to besiege Polyperchon's army and bribe his troops to desert him. This left Polyperchon trapped at the border with minimal forces, which meant he now could not return to defend Olympias. Olympias dispatched her own troops through the passes that led into Macedonia to try and prevent Cassander from gaining control of them. But when her soldiers made it to the passes, they found Cassander had already taken them. Knowing her enemy was closing in, Olympias moved to Pydna, a port city not far from the holy mountain of Olympus. Pydna was ill-prepared for the arrival of Cassander, and Olympias was there with a retinue of courtiers and only a small military force. This was not an optimal place to make a stand. She was sandwiched between the mountains and the sea, and the number of soldiers with her was not great enough to meet an army. She was counting on aid from her allies, but they were having difficulties of their own. Her friend and ally Eumenes was busy surrendering and subsequently being murdered in Asia. Her nephew, the faithful Eosides, king of Melosia, led his army into Macedonia in an attempt to keep Cassander from getting to Pydna, but his troops found that Cassander's soldiers were already spread throughout the passes of Macedonia, a realization Olympias' own troops had had not long before. According to Diodorus, most of Eosides’s warriors deserted at this point, then returned to Epirus, where they sparked a political revolution or added fire to one that was already occurring, and ended up exiling him. At the news of the military failures of her generals, as well as the new uprising in Epirus, those who supported Olympias were reluctant to leave her side, but came increasingly fearful that they were now supporting the losing side. Polyperchon had failed, Eosides had failed, Eumenes was either dead or nearly so. The Aetolians had been thwarted, and Cassander was now besieging Pydna. Olympias had a choice here. She could have fled Pydna when she heard of Cassander's advancement and the failures of her allies, but she chose to stay. She may have been holding out hope for a late arrival of an ally, possibly by sea, or she may have decided it was just time to make a final stand. Cassander surrounded Piedna and waited. When the motley crew of troops she had began to starve, she let them go to return to their families. It was time to negotiate. Olympias agreed to surrender to Cassander on the promise of her personal safety. She would surrender, but only on the condition that Cassander spare her life. He agreed to her terms, but he lied. He wanted Olympias dead. She was dangerous and the people of Macedonia revered her. She represented Alexander and she represented Philip who had brought Macedonia out of obscurity and onto the world stage. As long as she remained alive, she would do everything she could to secure the continued rule of her dynasty. But killing Olympias would not be an easy task. She had many supporters, and the people held the mother of Alexander in high regard. Cassander put Olympias on trial, a trial we unfortunately don't have much information about. But there are a couple of reasons he would have done this. One, he wanted it to appear that the people themselves were calling for the death of Olympias, washing his hands of her execution. She would have been tried by the very men she had just fought against, so Cassander was probably banking on a large number of people to condemn her. He also wanted her actions brought before the people in a public way, hoping that, although he had committed acts just as violent, they would find her actions abhorrent enough to accept her execution. He called on the family members of those she had killed to come forward with charges against her, the writer Justin claims he had to bribe even them to do so. Cassander seems to have bought a lot of his friends. The accounts of what happened are contradictory and diverge in many places. I'll give you first the version that Carney states probably holds more truth than the others. It seems that there were either two trials scheduled, one for her killing of nobles, the other for the killing of a king, meaning Aridaeus, or that her trial had to be stopped prematurely because the people were being swayed to the side of Olympias. Not wanting her acquittal, Cassander stopped the trial from finishing. Olympias' reputation was a problem. Cassander couldn't seem to convince the majority to his view that she should die. According to Diodorus, Cassander sent some of his friends to try and lure Olympias into an escape attempt, if he could make her believe escape was possible, then catch her in the act, he could have her killed then, thereby justifying her death and proving her guilt. But Olympias refused to flee. She was intelligent and believed she could garner the support of the Macedonians her husband and then son had ruled. Fearful that her reputation would force him to keep his promise of granting her her life, Cassander dispatched 200 soldiers to kill her, before she could publicly make her case. Olympias was famous, and Cassander was trying to implicate a larger group of people into her murder in order to keep his hands a little less bloody in the eyes of those he wanted to subsequently rule. But when the soldiers broke into the royal dwelling to kill her, they hesitated. Then they retreated. They simply could not bring themselves to kill the mother of Alexander the Great. Olympias was proving irritatingly hard to kill. Cassander then, after much convincing, finally persuaded some of the relatives of those that Olympias had killed to murder her. Justin wrote that Olympias arrayed herself in royal attire and boldly marched out to meet her killers. And when they plunged their swords into the body of this mother of an empire, Justin wrote, quote, You could see alexander even in his dying mother olympius was dead her life had changed history spurred an empire been so powerful and so bold that she broke every mold that tried holding her she has been hated for two and a half thousand years for surviving ancient writers and even contemporary ones have melded fiction and propaganda with fact making it impossible to know who this woman really was. But you can feel the echo of her in their accounts. The resiliency, the intelligence, the grit. Whoever she was, she was bigger than the life she lived. She was not forced to hang herself like many noble women of the day. She had died by the sword, the traditional death of a Greek hero. Other, less credible accounts of her death exist. One says she was stoned to death. This would have not only been a huge break with tradition, but was probably a way for the writer Perdiccas to make his audience believe she was a hated woman who died an ignoble death. Another account backs up the claim that the first wave of soldiers sent to kill her refused to do so, and that the second wave sent by Cassander finally stabbed her to death. A brutal end for a brutal life. Cassander refused to give Olympias a proper burial and ordered no one else do so. Despite this order, she was eventually given one, though its exact location eludes archaeologists even to this day. Speaking of her end, Carney wrote quote, Although she ultimately failed to achieve her political goals and her enemies murdered her, Olympias contrived to live nearly seven years into the tumultuous period of the successors, "'to play a role in the great events of the day unprecedented for a woman, "'and to die a death that was at once heroic and, many would say, deserved. "'Certainly it suited the life she had lived.'" Unquote. But what of the other players in this story? Roxana and Alexander IV were still alive when Olympias died. Cassander imprisoned them both, and tried to illegitimize Alexander's son, while simultaneously trying to legitimize himself. He married Alexander's half-sister Thessaloniki, who he had captured and kidnapped during the Siege of Pydna. He also gave Edea Eurydice and Eredaeus a resplendent burial, trying as hard as he could to look like a viable successor. After some years passed and he finally felt more secure in his position, he murdered both Roxana and Alexander's son, ending the line of Alexander the Great. After that, he crowned himself king, just like Olympias said he would. Olympias' daughter Cleopatra was put under house arrest in Sardis. She attempted to flee to Ptolemy, who was now ruling Egypt. He was a childhood friend of hers, and a chance for her to find safety. She was captured before she could reach him, brought back to Sardis, and murdered by one of Alexander's generals. His full sister, his son, his wife, and his mother had all met their violent ends at the hands of those who had fought by his side and promised him their loyalty to the end. Cassander had three sons, none of whom would live long enough to secede him. When he died of an illness around 60 years old, his kingdom fell into the hands of Demetrius, one of his enemies. This may be apocryphal, but it was said that at one point in his life, upon seeing a statue of Alexander, he would faint and fall to the floor. Accounts say he could not look upon the image of Alexander without becoming sick. No one in this story had a happy ending, and that really sucks because I don't want to leave this epic life story on a downer. I just can't do that to you. So, I found a poem for you, one that I think resonates with the lives of so many of the people in this history. This is the poem Invictus by the English poet William Ernest Henley. It was written in 1875 and I will never again read it without thinking of Olympias. So here you go. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody That is where the incredible story of Olympias ends. It's weird, but I always feel like I'm saying goodbye to a friend when I end these long series. It almost feels like a loss. and It's hard not to feel connected in some strange way to a person or group of people that you spend so much time trying to figure out, trying to tell their story. I'm going to miss Olympias. As ruthless as we would consider her now, like everyone else in this story, I can't help but find some inspiration in her grit. And I hope you were able to take something from this story, too. Thank you for being with me while we wound our way through it. The next episode will be in three weeks instead of the usual two. After this epic series, another week will give me a little more time to begin researching my next series. After that, we'll return to the usual bi-weekly schedule. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, and you can find me on Twitter at the handle at history. If you'd like to help support the show and keep me going, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. And if you're already a patron, I can't thank you enough for your support. You are the Olympias to my Melosia. And even if you're not a patron, thank you for listening today and choosing this show out of the hundreds of thousands of others you could have chosen from. I genuinely appreciate that you've listened and given part of your day to the story of Olympias. I've been your host, Kristen robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, my dear wandering ancient heroes of time and legend, go make some history.